On 18 August 2020, elements of the Malian armed forces began a mutiny. Soldiers on pickup trucks stormed a military base in the town of Kati before making their way to the capital, Bamako, in a convoy of tanks and armored vehicles. The soldiers detained several government officials, including the president, Ibrahim Bobokar Keita, who resigned and dissolved government. This is the country's second coup in less than 10 years following the 2012 coup d'etat. But the genesis of this movement goes back to long-standing discontent among Malians, who witnessed years of rampant corruption and unchecked illicit activity. The illicit economy penetrated politics and undermined government and state institutions, thus setting the stage for a coup. You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This week, we're looking at the role the illicit economy played in pushing Mali towards its second coup in a decade. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. If he continues like this, there will be what we call a civil war, because things can continue like this without uh, respecting the law. And uh, he has to stop making favor to his uh, family. Prior to former Malian president Ibrahim Boubacar Keita's ousting, protesters gathered en masse on the streets of Bamako. Dubbed the June 5th movement, the protesters were made up of civil society, social and political groups, all vying for change in Mali. A critical turning point in the movement was a violent clash between protesters and security forces on July 10th, taking the lives of 11 people. In the weeks that followed, discontent spread to the Kati military camp, leading to the formal resignation of Mali's president. On August 18th, at about noon local time, Philip Obaji is a Nigerian journalist, activist and founder of One Game, Football Without Violence Initiative. A group of junior officers began mutineering at the Kati camp. They were able to arrest and detain a number of senior military officers. When they were done with their uprising in Kati, they traveled to Bamako. Bamako is about 15 kilometers away from Kati. And they went straight to the residence of President Ibrahim Keita. And once they got there, they were going to shoot in the air. And that scared a lot of people, perhaps including the president. Military officers found their way to his residence and they arrested him and they drove him back to Kati, where they came from. The following day, August 19th, President Keita on state television announced his resignation from office. Initially, we thought that he was forced to resign, but later on, the coup leaders alleged that he resigned on his own will, and that assertion was confirmed by the mediator for the Economic Community of West African States, that's ECOWAS. What are the key socioeconomic and political factors that led to the recent coup in Mali. Mali has faced many years, if not decades, of economic downturn, poverty, political instability. In 2012, there was a military coup. A group of soldiers that emerged from the same Kati military camp toppled then-President Amadou Toure. And after the coup, there was so much of chaos in Mali, so much of uncertainty, and that gave room for extremist groups in northern Mali to expand into the central region of the country. 
Since then, Mali has really not been the same. The following year, in 2013, elections were held. President Brahim Keita was elected. He had been president until his ouster on August 18th. But under him, a lot of things did not improve. Rather, so much of Mali really took a nosedive. Unemployment rose by 7%. Poverty levels rose by 5% from 2012 until this day. And last year, Mali had the worst displacement crisis ever in its history. But beneath it, there are also these issues of massive corruption, inequality, uh, low employment rates, poor health facilities. The coronavirus did expose a lot of issues that Mali is facing in its health sector. That was Philip Obaji, Nigerian journalist, activist and founder of One Game, Football Without Violence Initiative. News coming to us out of Mali, where the military say the president and the prime minister have been arrested in what could be a coup. It started. Ils sont les visages du coup d'état au Mali. L'homme qui lit le communiqué, Ismail Wag, est major colonel, chef d'état-major adjoint. It's been more than two weeks since the ousting of Mali's former leader. As time has gone on, citizens have become more vocal than ever about how corruption has impacted Malian lives and the change they hope to see under a new government. Brema Elidiko is a sociologist from the University of Bamako. It is true that the coup d'état was very well received and even the former presidential majority acknowledged. It whistles slightly, avoiding using the word coup d'état. Some people call it coup de force, violent overthrow. Others call it a coup de pouce, more of a nudge and some call it a military-assisted resignation, thus the junta in power. Its action was hailed as at least creating a framework for discussion between all the living forces in Mali around the fundamental issues of governance, governance, security and the health of justice. Corruption was a major push factor in the lead-up to the coup. What was the Malian experience of this? How did corruption affect people's daily lives? Corruption has been a major factor in the Malian crisis. Since 2005, there has been an Auditor General's Office. Every year, the Auditor General's Office produces reports that show that there are 80 to 100 to 120 billion CFA francs of financial embezzlement. Unfortunately, the trials are not moving forward, and in many cases, the reports are ignored. So the fight against corruption has simply become a slogan. Corruption has affected how schools, the health service, and the army function. It also affected access to basic social services in general. Corruption has certainly created a lot of frustration. There are many very concrete examples of corruption in the army. The government of Mali voted in and then passed a law called the Military Programming Act. This act established a fund of 1.230 billion CFA francs. It is a lot of money and the President of the Republic bought a few planes and military equipment. The problem is that there was overbilling and the military equipment did not work and the weapons bought were not compliant. The planes had to fly for a few months, but since this they have been grounded until now. So that created a lot of frustration within the army. 
We were talking about billions, but it did not produce results in terms of improving the living condition of the military. In the field of education, for example, the Ministry of Education receives more than 330 billion CFA francs a year. But despite all that money at schools, there are a lot of problems. This year, 2020, schools were closed for seven months because the teachers were on strike. They had signed an agreement with the state. It was not honored by the state, so they refused to give classes and even exams. For example, classes could not take place and the scheduled exams were postponed. Corruption in Mali is a plague. It's really a big problem. Was there a general sense of awareness among the population of the extent of narcotics trafficking in Mali? Yes, generally speaking, Malians are aware of the drug trafficking issue. You know, in 2009, there was a cargo ship that left Venezuela and landed in northern Mali with 10 tons of cocaine. This time was the peak of trafficking. Before this, cigarettes, cannabis and ashish smuggling had started in the 90s and drugs from 2000 onwards. Drug trafficking started to increase in 2009 with cargo planes. Various reports have even often mentioned the former president of the Republic, Amadou Toumani Touré, who was overthrown in 2012, saying that he had knowledge of this trafficking and that certain people close to the president were involved. We have, for example, a member of the National Assembly who is elected called Ul Matali, elected in Burem, who has even been cited in a UN report. And then there is the drug money. If you go, for example, to Gao, there is a cocaine district in Gao, in this city there. It's the eighth largest administrative in Mali. There's also Bamako, for example, in the district, has a golf course, a lot of big buildings. They have grown thanks to money, drugs. Whenever Bamako is on the news on TV, cannabis is always mentioned. We see that there are people who have been arrested with cannabis. There are a lot of children and a lot of young people who have been arrested, who have done violence, who have killed people, who have injured people who have been arrested in this drug trafficking industry. Has the enthusiasm that propelled the protest movement started to fade, or are people still hopeful? Because the Malian justice system was very criticized, it really raised a lot of hope in this country, at least with the arrival of the military. We can, for example, initiate some reforms and revise the constitution and make progress in the investigation into corruption cases. We can make the Malian justice system more independent because it is reputed to be a two-speed justice system. So the enthusiasm continues, even if it's true that the junta has committed three mistakes that some people like me think it's a pity. The first mistake is discussing it alone with the ECOWAS, without even discussing it first with the Malians to find out what the Malians concerns. The discussion with ECOWAS have been centered on the duration of the transition and who will secure it. In my opinion, it was more important to discuss the priorities of the Malian people, 
and what we can do during the transition. And once Mali agrees on it, then we will be able to talk to ECOWAS. The second error is that the Junta has adopted a fundamental law, that is to say a new constitution in which it is said that the head of the Junta would be the president of the transition, whereas in their first communique, they had said that it was a civilian who would have to assume this. For me, this hit a nerve. I thought maybe he wants to play a more important role. The third mistake was that he had called for a national consultation. However, it was badly prepared. Like the M5 RFP who had organized uprisings in Mali. So they are somewhat bit ill-prepared and they want to go faster without understanding the death of the crisis and so it has created a bit of doubt. There is a foundation called the Windy Foundation which has carried out polls in Mali. The results of the study said that 63% of Malians want the transition to be led by military because the political class has resigned. Malians think that all policies, whether they are in opposition to the majority, are all the same, and here must be the possibility for the military to finish the job. Is there consensus and collaboration between the June 5 movement and the military junta that exercised the coup? Do ordinary Malians have faith in the junta? Well, ordinary Malians trust the junta more than they trust political actors. They trust the junta more than they trust civil society because in civil society we have former politicians who have created associations, NGOs, etc. So Malians prefer the junta to politicians and civil society. The relationship between the junta and the June 5 movement have evolved a bit. On the first day of the coup d'état on Tuesday 18, the M5 had mobilized a lot of people at the boulevard and the junta even came to mingle with crowd. So they were all happy. A few days later, the junta wanted to do this national consultation without inviting the M5 directly. This created a little frustration among M5. The Imam Mahmoud Diko, during a preaching at the mosque, said that until he returns to his mosque, that this mosque is in Mali, and therefore he thinks that the junta is making mistakes, that it should not forget to add the M5 to all discussion. So it's as if the M5 has started to forge some hope. Frankly, it's starting to go well because the junta has postponed the first national consultation. And last night, the M5 and the junta met discuss together. And then a few days ago, they saw each other. The M5 made the junta understand that popular supports depend on M5 and that M5 did a lot of mobilization anyway. M5 allowed the junta to have popular legitimacy. The junta understood and so the relations are starting to be much better. The hashtag Ma Transition or My Transition is trending on social media. What are now the priority concerns for civil society groups and ordinary citizens? Concerns vary depending on the area. For example, in the south, in central Mali, the revision of the constitution is a priority because we have been talking about this revision since the beginning of 2000. We did not have to revise the position, however, what is happening today shows the limit of our constitution. 
Then the other priority is the resolution of the school crisis, because the school, as I said, has been closed for almost eight months now. Another general concern is the fight against corruption and the need for an independent judiciary that can carry out additional investigation to punish all those who have financial wrongdoing in Mali. In contrast, in the northern regions, such as the Mopti region, the main concern is security, because there, the terrorist group, the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, or thanks to Harare, the support group of Islam and Muslim in central Mali, in Amadou Koufa's Katiba Masina, over their daily life is structured by terrorist attacks. Attacks against the army and the social economic life economy has practically crumbled. Therefore, the disarmament of armed groups and a return to smooth socio-economic activities is a key concern. That was Brema Elidiko, a sociologist from the University of Bamako. In Mali, widespread protests and a military takeover took place during a span of a little over three months, but unrest had been brewing long before the public took to the streets. The Malian public is just generally frustrated with multiple failures that are going on in the country. Peter Tinti is a journalist and senior research fellow with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. In the cities, particularly in the capital city of Banco, basic goods and services have not improved in recent years. Despite the fact that Malians are being told repeatedly by their own government and by the international community that a ton of money is pouring into the country to make their lives better, they just aren't seeing it. And so ordinary Malians can't really help but ask, where is this money going? Schools are decrepit, roads are barely usable, and yet new villas are being built by political and economic elites and fancy hotels and restaurants that cater to the international community are still thriving. That's just in Bamako, the capital city. The north of the country is still under the de facto control of various armed groups, and central Mali has become the epicenter for violence, where local populations are finding themselves trapped between jihadist groups, so-called self-defense militias, and the Malian military. Everything, it seems, is just not trending in the right direction. And there's a general sense among the public that anyone who is doing well must be involved in something illegal or must be corrupt or must be stealing resources that are meant for the people. Can you briefly explain how Mali went from its Sahelian caravan trading routes to being a center of illicit economic networks in the region? Northern Mali has long served as a crossroads that links sub-Saharan Africa to North Africa. Centuries ago, towns and cities like the fabled city of Timbuktu emerged as vibrant centers of scholarship and commerce, and it was very much at the center of a lot of what was going on in the region. For a lot of reasons, mostly because the global economy has changed, overland routes have been replaced by air and maritime routes, the significance of a lot of these places does not have the same global import that it did before. And fabled camel caravans of the past have been replaced by Toyota 4x4s and lorries. But the communities that live in these places still rely on mobility economies across borders for their livelihoods. So there are really robust and important informal economies that are predicated on the smuggling and trading of all sorts of consumer goods like foodstuffs or vehicles or fuel or cigarettes, but also illicit goods such as narcotics or arms. And in the case of drug trafficking, in recent decades, two very important types of narcotics, 
cannabis resin cultivated in Morocco and trafficked through northern Mali have become a part of this economy, as well as cocaine, which is cultivated in South America and shipped to coastal West Africa, but then transported over and across northern Mali have also entered these illicit economies that existed before, but have been um, infiltrated by many of these different illegal commodities. Looking at recent drug seizures, is it possible to quantify the value of narcotics being smuggled? It's very difficult because we really don't have that much to go on besides a few indicators, none of which are all that precise. So the first indicator are seizures. And realistically, there just haven't been that many seizures actually in Mali recently. There have, however, been seizures of cocaine consignments in coastal West African states in recent years, in some cases, hundreds of kilos or even several tons, in which there are really strong indications that Malian networks were involved and that at least some portions of these consignments were intended to be trafficked through Mali. On the other side, we see that there have been seizures of both cocaine and cannabis resin in Niger that was likely trafficked through Mali. The third indicator that we have to go on is that we often hear or information often surfaces when there are violent clashes over drug consignments within Malian territory. If these were imprecise indicators of the value of narcotics being traded, what were the more notable signs of accumulation of wealth by those benefiting from this activity? So some of the indicators we see are that certain actors who are alleged to be involved in drug trafficking are people who are not traditionally either from a community that would have a lot of formal or informal economic or social power in northern Mali, but they have translated the proceeds from narcotics trafficking into being able to disrupt these traditional hierarchies and establish new balances of power. There are some very concrete cases in which people who were from communities that were traditionally considered of a lower status have really emerged and, and actually translated this newfound economic power into getting involved in politics. That's just one indicator. The other is just that there's conspicuous wealth in certain cities that people wonder, where did these people get this money? And the answer is not always really easy to find because they're clearly involved in some sort of illicit activity. How do rebel and militia groups in northern Mali interact with traffickers? Trying to understand the ways in which drug trafficking in particular interacts with and intersects with all of these balances of power is actually a real challenge. And it's a real blind spot, I think, for a lot of the international community and a lot of observers who are trying to understand the ways in which drug trafficking influences outcomes and power dynamics on the ground. I think one thing to always keep in mind is that when we talk about drug trafficking in the Sahel, there's often a tendency to think that drug traffickers really rely on or want to exploit ungoverned or quote-unquote lawless spaces in order to carry out their activities. But in reality, these are not ungoverned spaces. Now, the Malian state might not be present or providing governance, but these economies are actually regulated through patronage networks, through protection economies, through informal agreements between key actors who don't mind if there are illicit economies in their territory. What they don't want is violence over them. So there's these informal regulatory systems that really allow a diversity of actors to carry out these activities with a degree of predictability, even though there's no really one group that has a monopoly of force. And within that context, it's also important to note that very few of these actors are exclusively drug traffickers. There are people who are involved in 
an array of different economic activities, some of which are illicit and licit. They might be involved in financing artisanal gold mines. They might be invested in property or transportation businesses. They might be elected officials. And many of these actors are either members of or high-level members of the armed groups that are signatories to the peace process that's ongoing. And that gives them a degree of legitimacy and gives them kind of a right to act. And how do drug traffickers interact with the state? With whom do they form key alliances? Drug traffickers will form key alliances with whoever they need to. To go back to 2012 and the years leading up to the coup d'etat in 2012, at that point, drug traffickers were very much embedded within Malian state security structures. So they were paying off and co-opting high-level elected officials, as well as Malian security officials. And there was very much a understanding between the Malian government and various drug traffickers who were also involved with rebel groups that they could continue their activities so long as they were fighting on the side of the Malian state. This arrangement completely broke down after the coup d'etat in 2012, but many of these traffickers and key individuals quickly formed new alliances with the local jihadist groups to ensure that they could continue their activities. And then as soon as the jihadist groups were driven out of northern Mali by a French-led military intervention, these same actors turned around very quickly, repositioned themselves as statesmen or members of the community who represented northern Mali. Have any arrests of those involved in this illicit activity been made? Drug traffickers in northern Mali have been able to operate with impunity due to their political connections. And in the rare cases that someone is arrested for drug trafficking, they've almost always been released shortly after, uh, often under quite dubious circumstances. After the coup, however, one of the high-level officials that the junta did arrest was General Musa Jawara. Now, Jawara was the head of the Malian intelligence agencies, and according to a recent United Nations Security Council report, he had been receiving monthly payments from drug traffickers in exchange for protection and promises of impunity. The person who was making these payments, according to the UN report, was Mohammed Ud Matadi. And Matadi is a bit of a notorious figure in Malian politics. He's a representative in Mali's National Assembly, and at the same time, he is on the UN sanctions list for activities that have been deemed detrimental to the ongoing peace process in northern Mali. But most importantly for this conversation, Ould Matali has long been tied to drug trafficking, specifically via his son-in-law, who's named Mohammed Ben Ahmed Makri, but goes by the alias of Ruji and is one of the most well-known drug traffickers in the region. Now, we don't know if the junta arrested Jawara because of his alleged connections to drug trafficking or if it was for other reasons. But his arrest is at least one example of someone with ties to drug trafficking being arrested. And this particular case, I think, highlights the extent to which drug traffickers have connections with the highest levels of the Malian government. What impact does this have then on state institutions and trust in government for Malians? It really just erodes people's faith in the Malian government and also the Malian government's ability to actually tackle any of these problems. When illicit economies, including drug trafficking, are so intertwined with all of these different military and security structures, as well as economic structures, there's really no viable way to take these actors on. I think the most salient point in terms of 
how drug trafficking impacts governance as well as peace in Mali is that they can really act as spoilers. So drug traffickers are not, and drug trafficking is not a key driver of violence in northern Mali, but it is always a threat to peace. And that is if two actors, for example, who are affiliated with different armed groups that are signatories to the peace process, find themselves clashing over a given drug consignment or control over a certain drug route, that's going to then jeopardize the entire peace process. It can pull all of these institutions and structures into having to be a part of either ameliorating the conflict over drugs or to be compromised by the interests of drug traffickers. In that regard, drug traffickers and drug trafficking can really shape and set the parameters into what the Malian government is capable of doing. That was Peter Tinty, journalist and senior research fellow with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Since the military's takeover, multinational bodies like the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, have remained supportive of President Keita. But the June 5th movement, along with the military junta, have been adamant in their refusal to reappoint the former leader. To discuss what the coup means for West African states, here's Philip Obaji again. Mali will not want to see a repeat of 2012, where after the military coup, a lot of things went wrong. Extremism grew in the north, extended into the central part of the country. And one of the reasons why that happened was because the military held sway for two months, and there was a lot of uncertainty as to where Mali was heading to. For this time, what is important, you know, in my opinion, is that the military leaders quickly have to create a transitional government. That government will have to be headed by civilians and not the military, but it doesn't look as if that's going to be the case, because so far it appears as if the military wants to take control of things. Already what we see right now is a government without direction. Will this coup be a signal to leaders in the region that rampant corruption can lead to their downfall. Well, what's happening in Mali, you know, is not something that can only happen in Mali. West African countries are amongst the latest countries to have experienced you know, military rule. Burkina Faso had theirs you know, a couple of years ago. Nigeria transited from military rule to civilian rule in 1999. So these are still countries that you know, really have seen military coups in recent years. If this kind of situation extends beyond Mali, already there's a lot of discontentment in countries like Togo, in Chad. And these are countries where their leaders have been in office for, for so many years. People want to see change and a lot of people are, are dissatisfied with the level of progress made in these countries. At the time of this recording, Mali's military junta has been in place for less than a month. Only the future can tell what will come of this movement. Peter Tinti expresses uncertainty about the transitional government's ability to tackle the very illicit activity that sowed the seeds of unrest. Illicit economies and drug trafficking is not going to be heavily impacted by the coup in part because the coup leaders have in many ways gone out of their way to insist that this is not a huge rupture. They have very much in their public statements, at least, indicated that their goal was to remove Ibrahim Boubacar Keita, the president from office, to arrest some of his, the high level political and military leaders around him, and to just move on from there. We shouldn't necessarily take them at their word and a lot can change very quickly. But the ways in which 
these networks are very flexible and fluid and are not hierarchical means that they can adjust pretty quickly to whatever changes happen on the ground. So long as the general structure of the way Mali is governed formally and informally is in place. Now, should there be some sort of more systemic revolutionary moment that takes place in which hierarchies are completely upended and in which there's a real social change and the rules of the game completely change, then for sure illicit economies will be heavily disrupted. Compared to the 2012 coup, the level of disruption going on right now pales in comparison to that moment in which the coup led to a complete collapse of northern Mali in the takeover of all of northern Mali by armed groups, including Islamist groups. So even during all of that upheaval, drug trafficking continued. That said, if their activities do continue, then same problems will arise in which they will impact stability and fragility in the north and also might spark tensions between armed groups who are still competing over these drug consignments and citizens will be just as frustrated as they had been before the coup. And Bremer Elidiko believes that the fight against corruption has just begun. There is a desire for change in Mali, whether it's the agreements of the former presidential majority or the players of the former opposition in civil society. Everyone's talking about change, and people even want Mali to discuss and revise its opposition in order to move towards a fourth republic. For me, the fight against corruption is about to begin. We need to think about schooling and about health and safety. These are all projects that the Malians are ready to go and see so that the new Mali can exist. I would like to conclude by what happened in Mali, seen from the outside. is perceived as being in fact a coup d'état, but for Malians in general, even for those who were close to the former president of the Republic, It was something that was needed in order to create a framework for dialogue between Malians, because the dialogue was practically broken between the government and the opposition. Mali's recent political upheaval has left a nation and a region in the balance. While the presence of illicit economies and actors in Mali did not directly lead to the downfall of former President Keita, frustrations over rampant corruption and illicit activity primed the powder keg of unrest. The transfer of power will be crucial to ensuring stability in the region and preventing history from repeating itself. And events in Mali are now forcing neighboring leaders to examine just how much unchecked illicit economies could cost their nations. That's it for this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A big thank you to our guests, Peter Tinti, Brema Elidiko, and Philip Obaji. To learn more about the topics covered in this week's episode, head over to the GI's website, www.globalinitiative.net. While you're there, feel free to check out some of the GI's other publications for up-to-date information on some of the most pressing topics in the world of organized crime. You can also find last week's podcast on arms trafficking, kidnappings, and donkey skins in East and Southern Africa. You'll hear from us again in two weeks 
where we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in East and Southern Africa once again. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandria Sahai-Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening.